0: Imagine with me for just a moment that God came to you and and gave you special knowledge that allowed you to say with absolute certainty that at some point over the next week, Jesus would return. You don't know the exact moment, but you know that this is your last service at Lincoln Berean. Before the week comes to a close, Jesus will return. And you knew that with certainty. As you think about that, a question I have for you is, is there anything about your week that would look different? Armed, equipped with that knowledge, is there anything or any way you'd go about your week that would be drastically different from another week, a normal week? Would you approach your work differently, your friendships differently, the way you engage with your family, would it be different? Would it make any difference? Now, of course, it's a hypothetical question, but I think all of us in this room know that there's a long history of people making predictions about precisely when the return of Christ is going to occur. 1988 was a big year for a lot of these predictors. That was a time that a lot of people thought this was going to happen, and spoiler, it didn't. It didn't happen. when these predictions occur, when a date is set on the calendar or a year is set, so often people kind of go into a frenzy and they start changing their manner of life and sometimes it has tragic results. I know there have been people who have quit their jobs because the thought is, what's the point? If Jesus is coming back, why work? There's actually one case in Korea, I believe it was, where there was a date predicted and people decided, hey, what they were going to do is run up their credit card bills. They maxed out their credit cards because the assumption was, hey, no one is going to be there to collect the bill, so let's live it up. Knowledge of the coming of Christ, or at least supposed knowledge, resulted for them in, in a mindset that said, let's just go crazy. So what about you? If you knew that Jesus was going to return in the next week? Would anything look different? Well, that's what we want to consider together this morning as we continue our study of 1 Thessalonians. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to be walking through verses 1 through 11. Now, last week, you'll remember that there was a question that was concerning to the Thessalonians that Paul had to address, they were concerned at the coming of Christ, what would happen to those who had passed away, loved ones who had passed away prior to his coming? Would they have missed it? What's gonna happen? And as Brian walked through that text, he reminded us that that Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonians was that we will be reunited. Those who have fallen asleep and those who are still awake We will be reunited with Christ and we will live together forever. What an astounding hope we have. And as we turn to chapter 5, there are still some questions that Thessalonians have about things in the future. This realm of theology we call eschatology, which is just a big theological word that means last things. That which kind of will occur at the end. So Paul begins here in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So the topic is the times and the epics. Your translation might say the the times and the seasons or the eras. What Paul is referring to here is this practice that was common then and is still common today of, of looking at the scriptures and trying to discern, decipher exactly when Jesus is gonna return. And, you know, sometimes today it's still done with charts and calculations and algorithms, and there's an exact day and, and a date is set. And Paul is referring to that type of thinking, that type of practice, common back then, common still to this day, but he knew and he said to them, I have no need to give you any new information on this. They knew that exact knowledge of that day is not something that we can attain. He says to them, for you yourselves know full well, it's, it's a word that, that really depicts that they had incredibly accurate knowledge. Their theology was good on this matter. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night." The day of the Lord is a phrase that has really a lot of rich biblical depth to it. It, recurs, it occurs throughout scripture really referring to this, this coming day, this future day when God will set all things right, when all that is broken will be, will be fixed, will be rectified. And it is certainly depicted as a day of judgment, a day when the just judge will declare a final judgment. And there is a a sense of, of doom that comes with this sense of the day of the Lord because there are people who are adamantly opposed to God. They have chosen to make a habit of magnifying themselves over against the God of all creation. So there is this sense that this coming day of the Lord is going to be a day of judgment when those who are opposed to the creator and the ruler of the world will be finally and ultimately justly dealt with. Now to our modern ears, I think this sounds somewhat severe or even vindictive. And so we want to think well about this. And I think it helps to kind of pull back and think about the whole biblical picture. So we have to remember our Bibles don't start with sin. Our Bibles don't begin in Genesis 3. It doesn't begin, the story doesn't begin with the fall, but the story begins with our good God creating a good world. God is good, and that word barely captures what he is. There's just no one better than him. Take the best person you can possibly imagine, multiply it times infinity, and you come closer to just how incredibly good God is. And out of his goodness, he created everything that is. And he made man and woman in his very image and he made them with the intent that he would dwell with them, that he would walk with them in constant interactive relationship. They would dwell with him. We have that beautiful scene in the garden where he is is walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve were intended to live with him in that type of relationship. But of course, we all know what happened. Sin did enter, rebellion did enter and along with it, corruption and decay and futility entered. But that is not what God intended. And there is a day coming, this future day of the Lord, when God will set all things right and that which is crooked will be made straight, that which is broken will be restored. Today, when God's creative intent will culminate in a new creation and the life that he intends for, for human beings to live with him will be made possible once again, fully and ultimately. Now that day, that day of setting things right, that day of reckoning does bring with it a sense of justice. But I think when we think about the whole, when we consider the goodness of God and the fact that there are people that look at him and say, I want nothing to do with you. I think I would do this better than you. There is a sense where it is completely appropriate, proper, for that to be a day of justice and a day of judgment. There are people opposed to God, and therefore this day will be a day of judgment. I think we have to admit that when we think about that day, when we consider future things, it seems perfectly reasonable to start to have a curiosity stir up Within us, and to say, boy, I'd love to know that day. I'd love to be able to put it on the calendar. You understand why there's a market for that, because it's so it's so curiosity-inducing for us. But Paul reminds and confirms the Thessalonians of what they already knew. Exact knowledge of the timing of that day is just not possible. He says, It will come like a thief in the night. It will come with shock, it will come with surprise, it will come suddenly. Thieves generally don't send save the dates, do they? Don't get to predict that. Then Paul, as he continues, he kind of paints that picture even more vividly, saying it'll come suddenly, drastically. He says, suddenly destruction will come in the midst of people declaring that everything is normal. Peace and safety will be declared. And in the midst of that declaration, destruction will come. He says, just like a woman in labor pains. It just arrives out of nowhere. Suddenly, life is different. Suddenly, life changes. Now, the main point in these first three verses that's helpful for us to consider is not to get caught up on the details of that day, but to understand the general picture. This is a day that will come with a shock to some. And because of that, it's understandable why it kind of, Makes us uncomfortable, why it seems like somewhat of an unsettling day. There's no analogy that is perfect. there's no straight illustra- illustrations that's perfect, especially when we're talking about the day of the Lord. But as I was studying this text, I couldn't help but think about my time at a camp here in Nebraska. I want to assure you it's not camp sunshine. I didn't say that in the previous two, two uh, messages, but but I do want to say Sock Camp Sunshine because this camp was a bit of a mess. It's a camp that was a little out of control. I worked there from 1999 to 2005, and in order to protect its safety and its reputation, I'm going to keep its name kind of hidden from you and assure you that they've gotten better. But see, this camp was a bit of a mess. I went there as a kid, and I, I desperately hated this camp. I went there four times as a kid. My mom made me go. Two of those times, I came home midweek. I found the one payphone on camp. I was like, come get me. I will not stay here another moment. I really wanted to watch the Bo- Bozo show, and I really wanted to eat some grape nuts, much more than I wanted to go run to the flagpole back and forth and do all the things that we do at camp. It was a bit of a mess. And when I went there in 1999, it was getting a bit better. There's a new director that was cleaning it up a little bit, but it still had a number of things that that were not the greatest. And in fact, I would say that this camp probably should have been shut down. If a health inspector had come through at just the wrong time, there would have been too many violations and it would have been a problem. One little case that highlights this pretty well is that we had a groundskeeper that really had this dream of making this camp into his own personal private hunting sanctuary. And so he was busy uh, cleaning up and, and mowing and doing that kind of thing too, but also raising pheasants. Pheasants that he hoped to release on the land once the campers left, and so he had an incubator with all these pheasant eggs, and they'd hatch, and he'd try to raise them up so he could eventually kill them, you know? (laughs) Interesting enough, the problem was that the place he was doing this was in our nurse's station, and I don't know about you, but I'm not a health inspector, but that seems like a violation, Now, it wasn't a particular problem because no one could complain about it because that particular summer we did not have a nurse, which is a massive violation. Now, why do I say all this? Well, I say all this because I can remember with vivid emotional detail what it was like when we would be going about our normal day at camp and then we'd look out the entrance and we'd see a car coming over the hill and we'd see that cloud of dust behind it and we knew the health inspector was showing up for an unannounced visit. Pure chaos, pure terror. We'd rally together, we'd figure out how do we make sure the inspector goes to the places first that we think are a little bit above par, but how do we hide these things that are a little bit problematic? Hurry, get the eggs and get the straw out of the nurse's station, that's probably not gonna pass code. Pure terror. Chaos. See, when the one with power arrives upon an unsuspecting, unprepared people, it strikes terror in the hearts of those who aren't prepared. And Paul says about some people on that day, he says, Destruction will come upon them suddenly, they will not escape. It's a harrowing scene he's describing. So the question is, should we as followers of the Lord, the one whose day it is, should we also be nervous about that day? Is that gonna be a dark day for us? I don't know if you caught it, but in those first three verses, Paul was very particular in his pronouns. He says, destruction will come upon them. They will not escape. Paul's giving us a bit of a hint here that his description is relevant for those who are opposed to God. But the question is, will it be the same for God's people? Verse 4, he says, But you, brethren, you are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Paul sets up a series of contrasts and he kind of, sets in opposition being of the light or of the day over against being of the darkness or of the night. And he's saying that, that whether you are of the day or of the night is going to drastically determine what that day will be like for you. And what he's telling these Thessalonians is that as members of Christ's own body, as sons and daughters of light, as children of light, they are free to approach that day without anxiety. He says, but you, brethren, but you, brothers and sisters, you will not be overtaken on that day. See, for those of us who have been made alive in Christ, all of Paul's prior description in verses 1 through 3, none of that applies to us that will not be our experience on that day should they be nervous about that day absolutely not why because they know that day is coming they could live in anticipation of that day that is true of them that is just as true of us today we are people that know a day is coming in the future and we can live in anticipation in light of that coming day it's knowledge that we have See, for those of us who are in Christ, this day will be entirely different. Why? Paul says, because we currently are sons and daughters of light. We are children of light. Christ has done a work in us. Our identity has been changed and we are now light just as our God is called the father of lights. So he's setting up this contrast Children of light, children of the day versus children of darkness, children of the night. For those of the night, those who are marked by darkness, this will be a day of shock. It will be a day of surprise. It will overtake them suddenly. But for those of us that are in Christ, for children of light, while we don't know the date, we do know the day. We do know the day is coming and what it's like and we know it is on the horizon and therefore we can live in light of that day. We can live in anticipation of it. So the question is, what does it look like to live in anticipation of that day? Paul continues in verse six. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Paul's logic here is clear. He's basically saying, listen, since you are children of the day, since you are children of the light, participate in those activities that are daytime activities and reject those activities that are nighttime activities. Live up, essentially, to who you are. Participate in that which is a part of the day. As a child of the day, as a child of the light, we are of the day. Therefore, let us be alert and sober. And reject any draw to participate in the the activities of the night, drunkenness and sleepiness. Paul's using this imagery and these words, this language of sobriety and drunkenness, really highlight the difference to contrast the two ways of living. The Thessalonians, and therefore, by extension, all believers, those of us here today that are in Christ, we are to live in a way that is alert and sober. In other words, to live prepared, to live ready, to live sober-minded, to live in anticipation, to live alert, and to live alert, Paul says, to live consistent with who we are and what we are. He's saying, essentially, you're children of light. Therefore, live as children of light. As he continues in verse 8, he gives a bit more color to what it means, a little more description to what it means to live as a children of light, a child of light. Verse 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I don't know if you catch it when you're reading Paul. He loves his metaphors. And often he loves to mix his metaphors. And here he introduces a brand new metaphor. He's already said, we are children of light, children of the day. And now he adds this new metaphor essentially to say, we have been given resources to live as children of light. We have been equipped. We have been outfitted. We've been dressed up in the armor. And God intends for this armor that he has given us, to be used by us to live in a way that is in accordance with who we are, to live as children of light, to live in a way that we've been called. It says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So often when we think about the armor of God, I... I think at least my temptation is to think I need to put that on daily, I need to put that on. I need to put on the helmet, but catch the language here. Paul is saying it's already been put on. You have been outfitted. You have been dressed up. You have been put, you have put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation already done. We are not lacking in anything. God's given us everything we need to walk in a way that is worthy of the life that he has called us into, to live as a child of light. We've been dressed up in God's armor. The question for us is, are we utilizing that which we have been given? It's Pretty strange armor, isn't it? Faith, love, and hope. These words, it seems like they... Nearly always in the New Testament they occur together, especially in Paul. Some people call it the triad of Christian living. Faith and love and hope. I think of these as as characteristics of life in Christ. The the character, the very character of the people of God, that God is stirring up and developing and intends that, that, that we grow in these things, that we become people of faith. And people of love and people of hope, that this character is increasingly being manifest in us. So I think it's good to talk about each one of these for just a moment because these are words that we're so familiar with that sometimes they can start to lose a little bit of meaning for us. So, what's it mean to be a person of faith? A person of faith. Well, first and foremost, it certainly means that we've been saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, not of our own merit. We are people who are saved solely because we have placed our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that we could do. There is no way we could earn our way to God. There's nothing that we could do for ourselves. But while we were still dead, Christ died for us. And we place our confidence there. We place our faith there, our belief there. That's where we place our trust. And we are people that are constantly growing in faith. You remember that man says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so as I walk in this life with God, I'm, I'm constantly striving to trust him more. I just want to trust him more. And when I think about the different areas of my life, my family, my work, my friendships, all the parts that make up my life, I just want to entrust that more and more to him, to be able to release it to him, to grow in faith. We're people of faith, as as children of light, we live by faith. We don't trust in anything we can bring about on our own. We just place our confidence. We cast our trust upon God and God alone. We're people of faith. We're people of love. We're people marked by God's very love. We are aiming by God's very grace to grow in our capacity to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love our neighbor as ourself. We are grounded in this reality that God loves us more than we could ever know. That nothing, nothing could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and equipped with that astounding knowledge. We know that we stand in a perfectly sufficient, a perfectly secure place. So therefore we can say, what can the world do to us? What can mankind do to us? God is for us. Who can be against us? And equipped with that knowledge, armed with that knowledge, with that sufficiency of God's love, we then are free to love even those who don't love us, to love our enemies. Because we no longer are seeking to get that from the world. We have that sufficiently from God our Father. And we're people of love. Constantly seeking to bring about good for those who we encounter, our neighbors, our friends, our family. That's our constant perspective. Oh, we don't do it perfectly, of course, but we're seeking to grow in that. We're people of love. We're people of hope. We're people that are filled with the hope of salvation. Hope is simply the anticipation of future good the anticipation of future blessing and we're people of hope because God has set us free from the power of sin and death. And he has now given us hope because we are allowed to live in a vibrant life with him and we're people that have a hope that looks towards the future and knows that a day is coming when what God has begun in us, he will bring to completion. We look forward to that day of the Lord when when this life that we are living but we are living still by faith. We we long for that day that we'll live by sight. We will be face to face with the Lord. We have this future hope. Hope of what God will bring us into. Hope of this future culmination of our salvation, that what he has begun in us, he will be faithful to bring about on that day. As Paul continues, he repeats again and gives more depth as to why we are people of hope. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. As children of light, we are marked by hope because on this day of future judgment, when those who are opposed to God will experience God's justice, God's judgment, God's wrath, that will not be our experience of that day. Our experience of that day will be the obtaining, the taking possession of the salvation that has begun in us, stepping fully into that which has been brought about in our life now nothing less than this future state where we will live with him eternally in glorious, unending relationship. So you remember, the story doesn't begin with the fall. The story begins with the garden, with that incredible intimacy with the Father. And there is a day where we will be restored and God will make all things new and we will live with face-to-face relationship with Jesus our Lord. That day is coming and we look forward to that day when all things will be fixed, all will be made straight. That day, the day of the Lord is coming. It will be a day of shock. It will be a day of surprise to those who are opposed to God himself, and church, let that motivate us to be people who are proclaiming the forgiveness and the life that is to be found in Christ to those who do not know him. Let that motivate us, and as we anticipate that day, let it be with hope, because we know that on that day, we will step together into the fullness of life with God. What a glorious day that will be in light of that knowledge. What would it look like to live in constant, anticipatory, prepared waiting? What would it look like to live constantly aware, constantly prepared, constantly anticipating the return of our Savior and our teacher and our Lord and friend to live fully prepared and to live by faith, love, and hope? to have that be the fine texture of our life. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of just my past week, as I was thinking about the coming of the day of the Lord, I was reminded of of a conference I was at this past week up in Mitchell, Nebraska. Got together with a a bunch of uh, pastors and family from the Berean Fellowship of Churches. It was a great time out there. And on Saturday morning, I had the privilege of hosting a workshop with 12 or 15 people. And there was a, one lady who came to my workshop that, that I had never met before. And she probably does not know this, but she was an incredible blessing to me. As the workshop came to an end, we were just kind of talking and, and we were talking about just how important friendship is. But it kind of turned into lament a little bit. And I began to kind of lament about, ah, oh, it's just friendship is so hard, I feel like. Just the older I get, the more I find that I have to work harder and harder for friendship. And I began to talk a little bit about my time in Spain, and they probably got tired of hearing about that. But I just, I love that we'd walk by a cafe, and I probably also had a friend that lived in that building. And so we would just real quickly grab coffee, and it was just so simple. It was so easy to have these impromptu kind of connections. And as we were talking, the others in the room started to whine with me, and it was really gratifying that they joined me in that. began to whine about, oh, I just wish. I wish these things could happen a little bit more casually. I wish we could just bump into people and get together, and friendship was kind of like that. And as we were whining, this little lady just kind of spoke up, and she said, oh, I love planning get-togethers with friends. I just love it that I can put a date on the calendar because that means that for three weeks, I just anticipate how good it's gonna be. I just constantly think about it every day. I see that date on the calendar. I know it's coming and I just, I just revel in anticipating that day and how good it's gonna be to see my friend that I love so much. I love that I get to anticipate it, that I have to plan it. And then when the day comes, I live quite a distance away from this particular friend, so it's just so good. It's so glorious when I get to be with them. And then after it's done, I love the period after because I just get to kind of bask in the glow of that incredible kind of relationship and the incredible kind of reunion that I had with my friend. I love it that I have to plan these things. It allows me to look forward to it. And I sheepishly said, well, thank you for highlighting what an awful friend I am, apparently. (laughs) And I walked away thinking, what a perspective. What a perspective. It's the anticipation of that day that adds to the joy of it for her. And as I'm thinking about the day of the Lord, it gets me to thinking back to the visit by the health inspector. And I think about that health inspector coming to the camp and the Fury it caused and the terror it caused and the shock it caused throughout the camp. And it makes me wonder what if the person that was coming to visit were our friend? What if the person that was coming to visit was someone that we had deep relationship with and what we were getting to experience was relationship from a distance now becoming relationship in person and we were able to look forward to that day because we knew this person was for us and when they come they just want to help us know how to run the camp better. When we see that gravel dust storm stirring up in the distance we don't get filled with terror and thinking, how do we pass the eye test? How do we measure up to this inspector's scrutiny? We think, oh, here comes our friend. I can't wait to be with him. What if that's what we thought about the day of the Lord? What if, in fact, we'd go a step further? What if when this health inspector came, what if we were so enamored with them, we just enjoyed their friendship so much that it inspired us to live in a constant state of preparedness? just anticipating his or her coming, just constantly ready so that when he or she comes, we can just enjoy the person and worry less about all the details. See, I think part of what Paul wants us to think about is not so much the day, but to think about the person. It is our Lord, it is our Savior, it is our friend who will come. And that day will be a glorious day. Church, a day is coming. A day is coming when our God will set all things right. And for those set against him, it will be a difficult day. Therefore, let that motivate us to be people who proclaim his goodness that more and more might step into the light. Let that be one part of what it means for us to live as children of light. But let us also live with hopeful anticipation, constantly prepared for his coming, to live as children of light, to step fully into the life that he has begun in us. We don't know whether it will be today or next week or 100 years from now, but we do know the day is coming. We do know the day is coming. And so let us anticipate that reunion with prepared hearts. Growing in people, growing as people filled and marked by the character of faith and love and hope. How would that change the way you walk through your week? How would that change the way you walk through your days, the way you interact with your coworkers? To live constantly prepared, constantly anticipating the return of our Savior. As this section draws to a close, Paul again kind of ends the way he ends so many of these sections in 1 Thessalonians, encouraging them not to just be encouraged by his very words, but also to encourage one another, to remember the critical nature of their community together. Verse 11, therefore, he says, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Encourage one another, build up one another. Therefore, he says, on the basis of what we've just heard, knowing the day of the Lord is coming and it will be a glorious day, let us live as children of light and let us encourage one another to live as children of light. Let us encourage one another and build up one another to live into the life that we have been called to. I've loved each week as we've had different staff Say to us as a church, to us as a body, hey, I am so encouraged by what I see in you. But I do wonder what would it be like not for us just to see that on a screen, but to turn to the person to our right and to our left and to say, I am so encouraged. I'm so encouraged to see you living as a child of light. And I want to encourage you, keep at it. Keep it up. Continue to live prepared. The Lord is coming, and when he comes, it will be a glorious day. And we are children of light. Therefore, may we live as children of light. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that by your gracious goodness... You transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son. And Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you are our king and we long for the day, we anticipate the day of your return when we will see you face to face. Lord, we ask that in these days between now and then, Lord, will you help us by your spirit? Will you empower us to grow in grace? to grow in the characteristics of faith and love and hope and to live as children of light, declaring your goodness to a broken world that more may know you and that we may live prepared. We ask that you would do it for the sake of your glory and in your name we pray, amen.